Welcome to Startup Happy Hour, sponsored by Content Allies. Grab a drink and join us to hear fun and inspirational stories from startup founders and visionaries who are making a positive impact in our communities and learn how you too can turn your new and exciting ideas into reality. Hey, hey, welcome back, everybody. Thank you for joining another episode of Startup Happy Hour. I'm Diana Chen, your host, and I'm joined today by a very special guest. He is a client of mine as well as a colleague. It's David Ledgerwood, a.k.a. Ledge. Um, And we're going to be talking all about uh, how he went from starting his career in management consulting at PwC to where he is today with uh, starting and rocking his own sales company, Ad10. Hey, Ledge, how's it going? It is so good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Very fun. Of course. Thank you so much for joining us. So I, I like to start by talking about just what is the big thing that you're working on right now. So obviously, I know that uh, your big thing right now is Ad10. Go ahead and and tell the audience a little bit more about that, as well as anything else you're working on that I might not be familiar with. Sure. So Ad10 is a company that we founded to help B2B services and technology companies make more revenue. That, that is all we want to do. So you think of that, the, the Ad10 means, you know, let's, let's 10x, let's stick another zero on the right side of that, that number there. That, that is what we want to do. We want to grow revenue. We want to make companies bigger scale in smart ways and, you know, build revenue machines and, and close business. So it's just revenue, revenue, revenue. That, that is what gets us excited. Nice. That's what gets me excited too. <laughs> Most um, people like money if yeah, they're being so, honest. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, you can't do too much with, unless you've got that cash flow as we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. You can't, um, you know, it's awesome to sit around and talk about, passion and vision and, you know, all these things and, and making a great culture. And like, I mean, all that is great. You know, I love it. Um, but you know, the reality is like, if, if the sales aren't getting put in the bank that you don't get a lot of chance to do all that other stuff. So, you know, I, I like to, or we like to enable founders to be able to think about those other things because their sales are getting done. And, sure. and that's, that's awesome. It, it gives people like the most amount of freedom. Is so when we can free a founder from having to ever think, again, about, you know, can I pay my bills or can I make my payroll? Um, imagine the brain space that that opens up when you don't have stress about revenue. I think that's what's really about. That's what gets me excited. I mean, I think that's what gets every founder excited too. That sounds like every founder's dream to just be able <laughs> to build whatever they set out to build and not have to worry about, you know, doing the sales part of it. So I think so. Yeah. I, it's exciting for us. Yeah. So basically, do you just go into these startups that you work with and uh, you, you, do you manage their entire sales process or what kind of involvement do you have in their sales process? It depends on what condition or, you know, sort of um, growth stage, I guess, the company is in. We tend to look for companies where the founders have, you know, kind of bootstrap sales themselves up to that mid kind of six figure annual kind of range, you know, so quarter million, half million dollars of sales. It's, it's not going to work very well for like, you know, Hey, can, can you help me with my go to market strategy or things that we, we could do those things. We don't find that, that that's uh, particularly rewarding. We don't like selling, you know, sort of consulting. We like bringing people more sales. And so you need to have a sales system sort of in place and some happy customers and some delivery, uh, you know, to be able to then scale that. So we really about scaling and 
making programs out of existing revenue, somewhere in that six figures, try to get to that mid seven figures there. Um, you know, we like to come in at a place where the founders are starting to feel, you know, the stress of having to run both sales and their company and all the other pieces. And so we can take that sales piece off. Um, often people will tell us, you know, well, I don't know if I can outsource sales, you know, I know my product better than anybody else. And, you know, all those um, different things. And I guess the answer is that this is what we do. And yes, you can, you can outsource sales. You can bring us in to help run that program, but um, we can build systems for you that you do all the selling if you want, but eventually you're going to run out of calendar. And um, we just find that most people, um, they want to be CEOs. They, they don't want to be chief sales officer and it's just a totally different vibe, but we can come in and, uh, and build those revenue things and put the people in place to take the calls and close the deals, make the proposals like sales. is just a lot of work and uh, not everybody wants to do that work. So, you know, we're pretty good at it and we like making people more money. Totally. So they've got to come to you with some kind of product and a strategy, go to market strategy, and then you make it happen. They, they should have sold, you know, enough of what they've done to, again, be in that like six figure kind of range. So this is not like I just started my startup. Um, you know, I want to get my first customer. It's we, we have maybe the ability to advise on a thing like that. I just, it's not my favorite thing to do in the world. Like if, if you already have customers that are, you know, maybe an average sale price around $15,000 for some kind of service contract or, or something of that nature, technology related generally, um, those are the ones that, that work really well for this. I would not want something brand new. Like if you weren't even sure that you could sell it at all, that's probably not a good thing um, for us to work on. Uh, we could work on it, but again, it's not our favorite thing in the world. So. Yeah, for sure. So how did you come up with the idea for Ad One Zero, and how, how were you able to narrow down your focus to just these six and seven figure businesses and, you know, and eliminate the small potatoes? Because I think a lot of people when they start businesses, they just want any client they can get, you know, it's, it's like everyone knows you should niche down and focus on one specific target, but it's easier said than done when you just need the money. And, you know, maybe a small potato reaches out and you're like, eh, not exactly who I want to work with, but do it like, do I have a better option right now? Yeah. Um, like I believe me, I get that. And, and, you know, so I'm going into, this is my 13th company. Um, you know, more than 20 years of, of work experience, uh, many of which were startups. And so I've certainly been in that seat where, you know, I started a company and I was so desperate for clients that I would take anybody that had money and splinter my service and try to do all kinds of different things. Um, I guess, you know, now it's like, I have the confidence and discipline just to be like, look, that's not a fit. Like I know what my target market is. I know how to go get it. So, um, we should focus our efforts on people that we can really, really help in the space that in exactly that niche that we know what to do. Um, but I don't fault anybody for chasing revenue. Like sometimes we have clients that come to us or custom, you know, potential clients that come to us and I'll say, you know, it's not a fit, but I know, I know a consultant that would like to work with you on that. And, and I'm looking at it and I go, yeah, we could do that. I could take the money off that poor entrepreneur and, and I could help, but can I really move the needle for them? You know, it's like, I'd rather give it to my friend maybe who is developing, 
their consulting company is sort of at a smaller scale than we are and can deliver that, you know, with, with a high degree of kind of integrity about like actually being able to help. I just, I don't like taking people's money. If I, if I really don't think that I can make a, a big ROI, like if we can go 10 to one on that investment for them, that's, that's what I want. Um, but yeah, I don't fault anybody that is really, you know, trying to bootstrap their company and, and taking on clients that maybe, you know, don't fit the niche. It, it's, um, it's hard to look money in the face and like say no, but you know, I, I think you should, but believe me, I get it. And there's always times that, that I have not done the same thing. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's awesome that you've been able to get to this point where you are able to differentiate yourself from others and kind of be a little more picky about your clients. Um, and I, I'm sure those 13 businesses you've run in the past have taught you a thing or two about how to get to the place that you're at today. So let's just dive back. Like, take me back. When did you first become interested in startups or tech or entrepreneurship? Was it when you were a kid or was it, you know, after college? And then how did you get from there to here? When I graduated college, it was right going into the first tech boom. So 99, 2000. Um, There was not this idea except, you know, in sort of like the Silicon Valley kind of world, like it was not like now where the startup ethos is like, everybody wants to be an entrepreneur and do a startup, you know, there just was no such thing. The technical infrastructure really wasn't there yet. It was web 1.0. You just, you didn't do that. It was really, really expensive to make a startup. Um, so I went and did the big box consulting thing and did my fortune 500 experience. And that was just like what you were expected to do. You had a business degree, you were going to go work for a big company you know, and, um, that was not the most satisfying thing in the world, but I'm glad I did it. I learned how to do a lot of corporate important things and and particularly my coding, you know, skills were, were leveled up doing some of that just boring, um, backend kind of stuff. I still, to this day, I still credit like some of those projects I did with my ability to, you know, actually document processes and do stuff, you know, with a, a level of rigor. But, um, after several years of doing that, um, it happened that I was in New York on 9-11, very close to the, the World Trade Center. And we, you know, had a, a harrowing time and, you know, just kind of didn't know if you were going to make it out, that kind of thing. And um, at that point, I started to think about, you know, do I really want to die under a desk doing something that I hate? You know, and, and it was it was sort of like one of those existential moments. So I went and did other jobs then and uh, a little bit more like in the media space and different things, but I had it in, in my head that I wanted to work for myself at some point. And I did. And I guess maybe, I don't know, six years after six, seven years after school, I went and I just, you know, kind of left my job and like, Hey, I'm going to start a company. I'm going to move to Nashville and Nashville is really cool now. Uh, but you know, then it was sort of like the up and coming, well, is this going to be cool? And, um, it looks like we chose right, you know, for a really great place to live. But I think back then it was still like, it was a coin toss of, you know, if that was a good place to go. Right. Was there much industry yeah. in Asheville back then besides music? There was like the, I mean, there's always been healthcare, but like old school healthcare. Um, and there was this, you know, scrappy up and coming idea that it was going to be a new startup town. And, and that did come to fruition. I think there's a really good startup space here now. Um, but there really wasn't much like infrastructure wise. And we came and we started a company and we did all right. And we, we got to that sort of mid six figure kind of run rate, 
that that now I would look at that company and be like, oh, that could have been a good client for us. But in in 2009, we hit the recession and that company went out of business. We just we lost all our clients. So you know, taking a hop through the years now and looking at like this big recession, you know, due to COVID and all that, um, you know, I, I've been there, done that. I've seen, you know, running a company through and the company died, you know, running through like a, a recession that was supposed to be the worst recession of our entire lifetime. And, you know, here we are again, right? So only 10 years later. So that experience was worthwhile. I think you add up all the experiences over all the bad startup ideas. And, you know, uh, I went through a period where I'm like, I'm going to run four different companies at the same time and do all my ideas and, you know, I, all this stuff. And um, so I learned the lessons of focus. You know, I don't, I don't do that anymore. I want to focus on one thing and at one time, um, the collection of all the things that I did ended up being mostly about services and technology. So I've always gravitated to more to a services business than, uh, you know, a product business or a pure play technology kind of business. Um, those are great. You know, they scale better. Um, if you want to raise venture capital or, you know, have a, a super high gross margin or something like that. But I just, uh, just kept doing services and, kept learning more and that's what we like to work on. And, you know, we're kind of happy in that space. So we know we're not going to be billionaires, but it's, it's a pretty good place to be. Yeah. So going back to when you first quit your job to start your own, your very first company, I mean, I know people who do that now and it's really scary, but what was it like back then? Because back then tech was kind of, I mean, you're, we're just coming out of Y2K when everyone thought the world was going to collapse um, when we hit the year 2000. So what was, what was it like back then to quit a cushy job to do something that was like totally unknown? <laughs> I mean, looking back, you kind of go like, wow, that was, that was kind of stupid. But I mean, you know, we did all right. Um, there wasn't, there certainly was not the tech infrastructure, but at any given time you look at like, you know, it, what is that? So it was 13 years ago, 13 years from now, you're going to look back and say, you know, 2020 technology was pathetic, right? You know, oh, we didn't have AI and we didn't have, you know, crystals built into our head that told us everything, you know, whatever, whatever things happen. Um, so at the time you think that you're in cutting edge technology, even if you're not right. But I remember trying to bring up and run our business on uh, the first iteration of what was, it was like the beta or alpha version of, of Google apps, which is now G Suite. And, you know, it was awful. Like, I mean, it just didn't work, you know, and, <laughs> but I insisted that everybody use it. We ran on Yammer instead of like, there was no Slack. There was no, you know, none of that stuff existed. I don't even um, know what Yammer is. What is that? Yammer got bought later by Microsoft. It's kind of like, uh, it, it'd be like if you had a Twitter that was just for your company, like internally, that's kind of like what Yammer was. Okay. Um, and it still exists now and it's used for, for corporate messaging. It's kind of like an internal Twitter. That's the way I would describe it. But yeah, Twitter wasn't even out. Like that came out later. And then we were like, oh, wow, look at this. You know, we'll use social media. Um, so I don't know, looking back, it was it was a pain. You had to colo your servers. There was no cloud. There was none of that stuff. Like nothing existed. That Right now you could spin up a new business um, at extremely low cost. You certainly couldn't do that, you know, 13 years ago. But it all moves along and you know, you, you use what you have and you, you guess you just think that that's the way it is, right? Like we all have Blackberries. Uh, so I, you got to laugh at that now, but it was, it was amazing the first time your Blackberry could load up a map and you could see where you were. Uh, we were amazed by that. <laughs> so, I don't yeah, know. No, I, I have to admit I was on the, I was 
100% on the BlackBerry train for as long as possible. I was one of those people that was like, I'm not joining the Apple bandwagon. <laughs> I, I'm going to be stubborn about it and hold out. And here I am today with, you know, MacBook, iPhone, iPad, everything. Yeah, I'm, I'm still an Apple hater. So, uh, but I, I went all, I went all Android. So I bought the actual, the first droid that there ever was. It was like the lowest level Android point nine version or whatever but it came out on verizon when i was it was like the first 4g phone that was in was in nashville so now we're all going 5g so i'm like an entire g i'm like an original g right you're the g you're a g i'm just absolutely that's all we can say about that so looking back on the 13 companies you've started in the past obviously we don't have to go through every single one Mm -hmm. but can you just talk about maybe a few that come to mind um, as you know, businesses that really taught you an important lesson that you still bring to your businesses today? Yeah, absolutely. I did one that was interesting in e-commerce where I tried to dabble into drop shipping because this sounded like an amazing idea, right? You, you didn't need a whole inventory. You just sell stuff and they ship it from the warehouse for you. And what you found that even back then, this had to be about 2012, was um, there's such a thing as like actually making a margin. And it turns out that you can't do that when you're <laughs> trying to compete against other people that actually hold their own inventory. Uh, even then you could Google a product and find the lowest price. And it was all about price. So, you know, I learned quickly at that point, like things like Amazon, you know, we're really going to rule the world on on e-commerce. So, okay, maybe that's not the best idea because it, it, it seemed like it could be, but no, it was a huge pain. Um, from a consulting company standpoint, we tried a, a bunch of different things. So I did a lot of different consulting projects and I, I came not to like the treadmill sort of a of project work because you had to keep booking the next one all the time. And even if you were doing a $10,000 project, there was always a time when that ran out. And so, you know, recurring revenue and subscription models and all those things started to really make sense to me. Um, I spent a bunch of time in a, a startup incubator where I got to work with like a hundred different, you know, startup companies and see all kinds of patterns and learn about lean startup. And, and I still think that that has a, a lot of validity to it. The, you know, just trying things out and testing concepts, you know, in the marketplace before you go all in on it, you know, do a test version, do a lean product launch. Um, that's a that's a huge lesson. I learned a lot about marketing. You know, I, I if I if I had any function that I was completely deficient in, it was marketing. Like I would have been like, don't let me anywhere near your marketing. And certainly, as an entrepreneur, you really, really need to know what you're talking about in marketing. And and that took probably the most work for me. Um, I'm still not a designer. Like I would not like you know, don't let me near your making your logo or you know any of your stuff like that. But at least have a an idea of what brand and messaging and particularly copywriting. um, That was a huge deal to learn how to do that. Uh, And I think a lot of it in the sales seat was you had to become competent to sell things, which means putting words together and concepts and showing the right materials at the right time. And so you, you almost can't avoid going to marketing, you know, even if you kind of didn't want to. So um, yeah, I don't know. I'm grateful for the experience. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a good point you bring up too is founders kind of have to wear all the hats, but it's, you know, like no one is good or enjoys doing all of the things that 
uh, a founder would have to do. So I guess like what's your advice for people that are starting their first company and still trying to figure out what their strengths are, (laughs) what their passions are, and how to decide when to invest in their own skills and maybe learn a new skill or hone a skill versus hiring that out to somebody else. I know that everybody's hungry like to start a company and it looks really sexy and like a great thing to do. I would definitely tell you spend as long as you can before you do that working for other people. Like you want to be in a startup, cool. Go work in a startup because you're going to learn a lot of stuff and you're going to have to wear a lot of hats, but you won't be the one that has to pay everybody else. When you're the founder, you got payroll, uh, you're on the hook, you know, it's, it's brutal. And if you don't have those experiences of being around other people going through that and, and just trying to figure out one function at a time, like you have to run all the functions. Um, so, you know, in, in some ways it, there's a lot of accidental learning that like I studied to be a financial planner randomly because I thought maybe I'd want to do that. And to this day, I'm so glad I did because I understand a lot of financial concepts that I wouldn't have um, that have been super helpful in entrepreneurship. But nobody teaches you that stuff, you know, from a personal finance standpoint, uh, how to analyze loans and, and insurance and all kinds of esoteric stuff that you actually need to do when you run a company. Um, so that was, you know, accidental and, and helpful. I find a lot of founders don't know anything about finance and accounting. And that's really tough. Like you need to know how money moves. And, and uh, you know, I've walked into companies doing over a million dollars of sales that don't know how to do double entry bookkeeping. And I'm like, whoa, you know, you, you need to do that. Don't know what cost of goods sold is. You know, people don't know how to calculate their, you know, their customer acquisition cost or their LTV or, you know, anything. So, you know, I would say for as long as you can stand it, if you have a startup bitch, like go work for a startup and don't be so hot about wanting to be a founder because uh, it's lonely and, you know, you will fail. And, um, you know, sometimes it's cool to fail with other people's money instead of yours. <laughs> but once you do it, you know, you'll keep doing it. I mean, I failed a lot of times. So, you know, I, I can completely appreciate the desire to throw in and just do it anyway. But, you know, look, just take care of yourself and, you know, do it in a healthy way, maybe and learn as much as you can before you, uh, you know, spend your own money. Yeah. So th- I think that's really good advice. And it's, you know, I, I, I'm really glad he threw it out there just because I think a lot of people like to say the, you know, you just got to go after your passions. You got to believe in yourself, trust in your gut, all of that. And all of that sounds, I think people like to subscribe to that because it sounds good. It sounds inspirational. It sounds uplifting. But I think you also have to be realistic about the situation. And I think that's what you just covered. And I think that's super important for people to hear. Um, You also just threw out a ton of words and concepts. And I'm sure some people were listening to this and having an internal freak out being like, I have no idea anything he just said. And I want to be a founder. So I feel like I'm a I'm really behind. So (laughs) people that are that just had that internal freak out. How do, where do they go to start learning about these things? And if you were to you know, uh, break it down to maybe the, the top three areas that founders need to have some knowledge in and can't just rely on outsourcing, what would that be? Well, I would have said it's hard to outsource sales. And I think it is hard to outsource your, like you got to know how to sell like your first half a million dollars or something. You know, like that's it. Like if you can't figure that out, you either have an idea that, shouldn't be sold or it is impossible to sell, you know, so sales 
is everything. I think you can, you can pretty much get somebody to help you out with all that other stuff. But again, you need money, right? Like if you don't have whatever, like even if a basic, every time I start a services business from like the ground up, like $0, I go, this would be so much easier if I had like 50 grand in the bank. Cause I'd go hire like an awesome, you know, finance guy just to be on a fractional basis. And I would pay for marketing the right way. Uh, but I'm like, you know, it's, if you're bootstrapping, like you, you literally have $0 to start with, which means like a client has to pay for everything you do. And therefore you need to be able to sell and deliver what you're doing. Now, again, like there are lots of ways that other companies can start and raise money. And I I've done a little bit of the seed round and an angel round kind of stuff. I have not raised venture capital, but yeah, I mean, like the basic, basic stuff, like you've got to be able to sell. I, I really think you should have a core understanding of what the difference is between marketing and sales and be able to do both of those things. Because um, I think sometimes people, people mistake marketing for sales. Um, marketing being like, well, if I just tell everybody about it, someone will just buy it. And after that, you know, operations and finance, right? Like if someone buys your thing, what process do you go through to actually do it? that is often a surprise. Like sometimes success can, can get ahead of you and you go, Oh great. I sold two clients. Like now what do I do? Like I have literally no idea how to charge them money. I don't have the appropriate infrastructure, you know, or set up to, to take checks or to take credit cards or, you know, actually set up a project management system or like, you know, so just think about what you're going to do before you get out because success will kill you. Um, we've had instances where we have clients that we sell, you know, so well what they did that it breaks their operations. So we have to be really careful uh, that people know how to deliver. Like if I brought you six clients tomorrow, what would you do? You know, because that it, success can, can hurt you also, you know, you have, so you have to be able to scale maybe slowly or enough that, you know, you, you don't have cash to pay all those bills at the same time. Yeah, that's, I think that's, um, that probably hits the spot for a lot of people listening to this. It, that just reminded me of something that Ben Taylor said in episode five. He created this like really awesome uh, security system for condo buildings and like um, apartments and things like that. And he thought he would try to sell it to his own landlord as a start. But he was so focused on building this awesome product and I guess didn't really expect to make a sale on his first presentation. So at the end of it, when she asked, yeah, I'm in, how much? Yeah, I think he just threw out like 200 bucks or something. And it's <laughs> obviously worth like tenfold more than that at least. Um, but he just freak, freaked out in the moment and was like, <laughs> well, right now I have people paying me zero for it. So I don't know, 200 bucks sounds like, okay. Oh, <laughs> Well, we do a lot of pricing and packaging consulting too, uh, just because of that. So almost almost nobody is prepared to charge what something is worth. Right, so right. We like to do that. That's for and sure. I and I think like for new founders too, you're you know your all your time is invested into building out this product or service, whatever you're doing, um, and you don't have a lot of confidence in that yet because you haven't made any sales. And so I think it's hard to price yourself at a high level because until you get that confidence, you, you know, you're like, well, who would want to pay 5,000 bucks for this? 10,000 bucks for this? I don't know. People yeah. Will. I, just, People I just go and ask for money. I mean, that's, that's what you have to do. I have this theory. I'm sure I've talked about this on some other podcasts, but you know, that, that your maturity 
as a, you know, as a founder or an entrepreneur can be measured in, in how many zeros you can ask for without feeling sick, you know? So in that case, it's like, if, if it comes right to your brain, that uh, 200 bucks, that's only two zeros. Right. So I would like everybody to get to the point where at least you can ask for, you know, five zeros without feeling sick. Right. Um, it's, when I first did my first like seven or eight digit deals, like, you know, 10, $20 million stuff. Um, even that was like hard for me to swallow. Like it almost felt like insane, you know? So look, there are people that do billion dollar deals. So am I like way up the chain? No, but at this point, you know, to ask for a hundred grand from somebody doesn't even really, you know, set my blood pressure up. So I think that's, that's the way to think about it. Like just, that's why we kind of made add one zero. It's like, we'll just, I don't know, let's just keep asking for more money until somebody says no. Um, you got to be able to do that or hire somebody else who loves making deals. But invariably I found that uh, entrepreneurs ask for probably, you know, one tenth of what they should for particularly for services. So uh, I'm always shocked and like, why did you quote that thing at $30,000? I could have got you 300, you know? So uh, I'm mostly just like, look, just don't talk. Let me talk. You know, like we're going to get a lot of money here. There you go, guys. Just hire out ledge and you don't have to deal with any of that. Um, so I, <laughs> I know, I know we've talked about this uh, separately, but I just think it's such a good topic to hit on that. I, I just want you to talk about it on this podcast as well. But for people that do struggle with, you know, selling their products or services for what they're worth and not undervaluing, severely undervaluing themselves. How, what do you have to say about, you know, like where do you draw the line between overselling yourself or just valuing yourself appropriately? Cause I think that's what people don't like about sales, right? Is they feel like they're being too salesy. They're, you know, not being honest. They get imposter syndrome and they don't think they're as good as they are all of these things, um, how do you, I guess like, how do you draw that line and just make sure that you feel good about what you're doing? I guess it's the question of like, are you, are you actually a good thing? Like, do you actually bring value? Because like imposter syndrome would say that when in fact you think you're less valuable than you are worth, right? So you should maybe do like a little third party analysis on, well, I don't know, other people like who know what I know, like what do they charge for their time or their, their product. But the insidious part about imposter syndrome is that you just think, well, all those other people are better than me. I'm not very good. Um, so I, I would, I would say at least challenge yourself on the things that you take for granted in your own knowledge base are probably not things that everybody knows. And so you, you, in fact, whatever experience you had or have done, it contributes to a body of knowledge that other people don't have because they don't have the same experiences as you. Just, you know, I guess if you're absolutely certain that you are going out and misrepresenting what is possible or what you can do or what your product does, then you're just lying. Like that is not a high integrity practice. But if the things you're saying are true or you're certain that you can do them, then it should be valued high because that person needs what you do. Like if you actually believe what you're going to bring to the table is valuable, then you should value it at that level. And it's true. It is a lot easier for a third party like, like us to, to kind of see that and go, that's valuable. That's not, here's what your competitors are doing. We're going to do this instead. Um, so there are times where, I'll, you know, uh, our clients will be, 
absolutely convinced that something they want to do is so valuable because they want it. And I'm like, there's no demand in the market for this. Like, no, you know, we can't sell this, but it turns out this thing that you take for granted is actually really valuable. Let's sell that instead. So I don't know, you know, I hear this, like, I don't want to be salesy and I don't even know what that means. Like, is that just saying like, I don't, I don't like making money. Like I, I don't want to get think people, paid. I think people just mean like, I don't like being pushy. I, I don't like being aggressive or. So then you don't believe in what you offer. I mean, if you, if you believe what you have is valuable, then you should be telling people about it. And, and it isn't pushy and aggressive to tell people, you know, here's what I do. I believe it would bring value to you in these three ways. If that's something you're interested in, I'd love to have a conversation. And then, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we should talk about that later. You know, uh, get back to me on Tuesday. Well, then get back on Tuesday. And if they don't get back to you, then get back on Wednesday or Thursday. And then a few days after that. And then a few days after that. And, you know, I just encourage people like you want to get a yes or a no. Maybe is is garbage. Uh, maybe it doesn't count. You know, so it's not pushy to get to a no. And uh, we have a lot of tricks and, and tools to make sure that we, we do that. I would rather eliminate this deal completely so it doesn't take my brain space so I can go for a yes. But a maybe, a pile of maybes, those are the ones that kill your brain. You know, I can't, I can't make money with a pile of maybes like eaten at the back of my, my skull. So, you know, get the yes, get the no, move on. Uh, one, of my, one of my mentors said, you know, in sales, you got to eat no's for breakfast. And that's, that's it, right? Like every no is closer to a yes. So just learn from the experience. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think too, like framing it as you've got something good that can help people. Why would you stay silent about that? Like even in your daily life, like my dog goes through these two big shedding seasons a year and it's like, we have to vacuum like three times a day. And so my, my friend um, also has a dog that does that and he discovered the Furminator. I love the Furminator. Like, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now this, I'm like, this obsessed. show has been brought to you by the Furminator. <laughs> We're not sponsored by the Furminator, uh, although but if, you should be. Yeah. It, Furminator, if you'd like to sponsor us, mm-hmm. please do because I tell everybody about it. But yeah, it's like when you find something like that that works so well, you just tell everybody about it. And I'm not sponsored by them. I get no cut out of telling all my friends about Furminator, right. but I do it anyway because I, you know, I, I just want to help them. I mean, I just question, why would anybody be in business if you don't think your thing is valuable? Like, I mean, you're going out of your way to start a company to make a thing available and then you don't want to tell anybody and that's too salesy. Like, I don't, I just don't buy it. Like, right. And then it's like taking that a step further. If you do think it's valuable, then why wouldn't you want to tell everybody about it? Right. Then you are depriving the world of your valuable thing by not being quote unquote salesy, you know? Right. Um, yeah, look, there are polite ways to sell and not sell, but it's not pushy just to tell people about what you you do. Some tell everybody about what you do because you don't know who knows who. Yeah, exactly. It's a classic way of doing business. Just tell everybody, this is what I do. I work with companies that have at least six figures of sales in the B2B services space and they're looking to scale up. Do you know anybody like that? I'd love to have a conversation. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, Okay. So we've talked enough about your, I mean, I don't know about enough. We've talked a lot about ad one zero. We could always go on, but I want the listeners to get to know ledge as a person outside of business. So tell, tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself. I know you're splitting time between two states. You've got five kids. What do you like to do outside of 
you know, running your business and making sales? Well, when you live in two different states and you have five kids and a business, that's all you do. So occasionally <laughs> fair, I sleep fair. a little bit, but uh, yeah, I am a, I'm a father to five kids, two, two boys, three girls. My wife lives in Dallas. I live in Nashville. So we have a commuter marriage. It just, uh, just ended up that way. When we met, we kept doing what we were doing. And so we get, uh, we get the whole circus together, you know, whenever we can. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, you know, when you're a parent and, a, and an entrepreneur, um, you kind of just, that's all you do. So <laughs> I'd like to say I have hobbies. I read a little bit, you know, maybe uh, sometimes, but uh, you know, I sit in front of three monitors and talk all day. So by the end of the day, like, I don't really want to talk to anybody else and be on more video. And um, it's just, sometimes I don't even want to look at another screen. So um, yeah, I don't know. I look forward to, I guess when, when kids are, you know, maybe older, I have a little bit more of a, of a hobby disposition back. I used to do a lot of volunteer work with uh, youth leadership training and things like that. So there are opportunities, but uh, broadly speaking, I'm kind of boring, you know, right now. So <laughs> I don't think that's boring at all. How old are your kids? Um, let's see, we have four summer birthdays. And so I need to count properly to make sure it's eight, eight, um, uh, 10, 11, 11, and 14. You got uh, twins in there? No, blended family. We call them the twins, but um, our three our three middles are um, each nine months apart. So oh. um, biologically possible, but highly unlikely. So. Right, right. I'm sure it's a lot of fun for them. It, it is fun. Yeah, they, um, they really do a good job um, hanging out and having a good time. We, we got to spend uh, many months together just recently because of, of COVID kind of hanging on one house, which we don't normally get to do because of, of different school systems and such. So, uh, yeah. What was that like? I mean, it, it was interesting, right. For, you know, we could write like a marriage case study about it. Cause, cause we've been married for five years, but we've never been under the same roof for more than like a week. <laughs> so um, this was the first time that we had to figure out, you know, who takes the trash out and uh, Oh, you do different, different dishes than I do. And when do you start the dishwasher and, you know, uh, who does laundry and who does this and that. So it took us the whole time to, you know, figure it out perfectly. And then, then it was time to go and go home. So, <laughs> so I don't know, uh, but it was, it was cool. Um, it takes a lot of space to have seven people in one house in quarantine. So there was a couple of times when we wanted to wring each other's necks, but we, we made it and, and we were happy. So. Congratulations. And you guys are still married. So yes, oh, very happily, very happily. Yes. Good, good. So it sounds like it went well. <laughs> Absolutely. Cool. Um, so I always like to end on this question uh, that I ask every guest, but what is your best piece of advice for somebody who is just starting out in your field or aspires to be basically who you are in the future? My best piece of advice. Um, you know, I would say focus on the big picture. You know, none, none of the little things are really going to kill you. I am a high anxiety person, you know? So I, I think that it took me way too long in life to realize that, you know, I should work out on a daily basis. I should, um, you know, eat right, keep a journal, you know, just do some basic personal health hygiene things to, for mental health and emotional health. Um, that's, that seems to be really all that matters, you know? Um, so I guess my advice would be there, like, keep your eye on, on that ball. Um, 
treat your body, you know, like your temple and, and just, uh, do the right stuff, even when it's, when it's hard, because your, your brain chemistry is going to follow the stuff that you, you know, that you do like activity wise and, um, the, the food and chemicals that you put in your body and, you know, keeping your head straight by, uh, just not, you know, don't embrace the crazy. There's so much insanity, um, particularly right now, you know, in the world. So don't be a news junkie or a doom scroller and, um, you know, don't rely too much on social media, you know, just try to try to keep a good balance. I think those are the, the things like if I look at the whole picture, like that's ultimately what has mattered through the course of time. Like what I thought was a big deal, like 10 years ago, it's not, you know, and, and even like the worst, most awful things that happened to me, they were all learning experiences and trauma happens. And, you know, we're still here. I have no hair. I have gray beard, but, uh, you know, it's, it's cool. I mean, it all worked out. So <laughs> I guess that's it. Nice. I like that. I, I really like, I really like that, you know, you, you went like a life route instead of just a purely business focused route for that. You got to do it. Um, I mean, business is when you're an entrepreneur, like you don't get to shut down. So if you're building a business, it doesn't fit in like a quality lifestyle. I most certainly do not believe in the hustle uh, sort of ethos of, you know, just blah, just grind and work 80 hours a week and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that, that's a whole bunch of crap. Um, yeah. Is that, is that something that you kind of learned over time? Like, was there ever a time when you did subscribe to that ethos? I think there was a time when I worked harder, not smarter, because I didn't know any better. Um, no, I never really bought into that. I always thought it like, actually, it literally like offends me when I read, because I was, I was a parent at the same time as being an entrepreneur, like generally every time. Right. And so I always, I always looked at those, you know, those annual articles that would come out on like New Year's, you know, or your New Year's issue of Inc magazine or, or entrepreneur or whatever. It's like the top 10 most productive entrepreneurs of the year. And you'd read through these things and be like, yeah, they get up at four 30 in the morning and they do yoga and then they, you know, um, do all this other stuff. And before they get to work and like at no time, like if they're parents, they never talk about their kids. And if they're not parents, you know, like I always looked at it and said, the only thing harder in the world for me has than starting a company has been raising a kid. So it, why don't we as a society sort of value that, that balance, right? Like of, of, uh, bringing up children, being more important than the, the hustle. So, um, no, I don't know. I, you know, I always, I've always had the tendency of being a workaholic, but I think I realized pretty quick that like I could sit in this stupid chair for 80 hours a week. That doesn't mean I got twice the productivity. It means I got like, you know, maybe 1.25% of the, of the, or 125% of the productivity, but, um, do that for a couple of weeks and, it just sucks and you feel like garbage. So it's not sustainable. So why would you try to, it's kind of like, it'd be like starting and running your company on like high interest debt. Well, you you can run your company on a credit card if you're not making any revenue, but I mean, ultimately you got to pay the bill. So it's not a sustainable and smart way to build a business. I think it's the same thing there. Like why are you going to run up your personal credit card to you know, on your emotional credit card, <laughs> paying 29% interest rate every month. And eventually it's just going to default. So don't do it. 
That's a good analogy. You always have the best analogies. I like that. Your emotional, (laughs) running up debt on your emotional credit card. I'm going to use that (laughs) one. I like that. Nice. Well, thank you for your nuggets of wisdom, Ledge. Uh, Last thing before we go, I like to play a quick game with my guests if you're up for it. Uh, I'm always up for it. Awesome. So we can either play this or that, or we can play the word association game and I'll let you pick. I don't know what this or that is. Should, it's just, I, I say, is? I say two words. I say like A or B and you okay. tell me which one you pick. No explanation attached oh. to any of this. It's just like a rapid fire game. Oh, let's do that. This or that. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I've got 10 things. Okay. I'm just going to say A or B and you tell me which one. No need to explain and we'll move on. All right. Plane or train? Plane. Hot or cold? Cold. Night or day? Day. Beach or mountain? Mountain. Work or play? Work. Freedom or stability? Freedom. Passion or profit? Profit. Dallas or Nashville? Oh, you're going to get me in <laughs> trouble with this one. <laughs> uh, 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 Little you're Rock, gonna... Arkansas. It's right. <laughs> All right, we'll let that one slide. Past or future? Future. Bootstrap or fundraise? Oh, bootstrap. All right. Congrats. You You've completed the this or that game with flying Fantastic. colors. Hopefully <laughs> that, uh, yeah, good, good answer there with the little rock. Um, <laughs> all right. So before we go, go ahead and tell people how they can find you. All these founders listening that don't want to run sales in their business. How can they contact you to help them with that? Um, go ahead and plug yourself, your website, your uh, socials, sure. whatever you want. I am David Ledgerwood, L-E-D-G-E-R-W-O-O-D, Ledge on um, LinkedIn. That's the social media that I use. So um, definitely on LinkedIn, it's easy to find me. Uh, Our company at ad10ADD10.co. And yeah, if you want to talk to us, that'd be the way to do it. Nice and easy. And when you see all the amazing content that is flying around under my name, you should talk to Diana and content allies because they do all that cool stuff for me. Oh, thanks. Thanks for the plug back. Cool. So can, can people DM you on LinkedIn too? Do you respond to that? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Just a request to connect and uh, send me a message on there and uh, yeah, we'll set up a call and if I can be helpful, we do have a really cool offer uh, that we do now. We call it the expert community, X-P-E-R-T. And for just uh, $500 a month, we have founders and other people in that community where you can take advantage of all of the, uh, all the materials that we've ever sort of generated for other clients. So like tons of articles and videos and audio and uh, all kinds of stuff that we have been paid to create. We genericized it and put it out there. So uh, for folks who can't do our step in of, you know, thousands of dollars a month, you can kind of do a self-serve kind of thing. And we help you out with a couple of calls every month. And um, so that, that's a pretty cool thing to look out for. And we'd love to have you. Nice. And how do people join? Do you have a website for that or do they just message you on LinkedIn? Or Just how message they... us. We're working okay. on the uh, landing pages and, and such to make that a little bit more self-serve. But uh, yeah, happy to talk to people about it. Cool. Sounds good. Well, thanks so much for joining Ledge and uh, I will talk to you soon. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Startup Happy Hour sponsored by Content Allies. 
If something we said today resonated with you, please share our episode on social media and sign up for our email list at startuphappyhourpodcast.com. Happy Hour doesn't have to end just because this episode is over. Continue the conversation with us at startuphappyhourpodcast.com or on Instagram at startuphappyhour.com.